Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Appalachians are often called mountaineers, but are they also pioneers? A new documentary reckons with what it means to be a pioneer. And in this adventure ahead, we aren't conquering the West, exploring the depths of the ocean, or jetting off to the moon. And an Appalachian competes in a championship tournament for skipping stones. This is all about reading the water, controlling your power, uh, and, and picking your target really carefully. We'll also wade into a mountain wetland in search of one of Appalachia's most elusive creatures. Bog turtles are three or four inches long, and they have a big orange-reddish patch behind their eye as well, which is pretty typical for the species, pretty iconic. I think they're, they're beautiful. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We begin today's episode with an excerpt from a new documentary called Oh Pioneer. Je suis hanté par cet lieu. All at once, I'm frightened by it and somehow head over heels for it. But it's been exploited. Too often, Appalachian despair sells books, movies, and news, obscuring the heart of this place. But if you filter through these loud voices, vous trouverez quelque chose qui vaut la peine d'être sauvé. Something worth more than the tired jokes we tell around our dinner tables or the ugly stories we see in the news. Something worth more than the coal that fuels America or the timber that holds our homes. I see a pioneer, a pioneer weathered by hardship, strengthened by mistakes, making a new path. And in this adventure ahead, we aren't conquering the West, exploring the depths of the ocean, or jetting off to the moon. Les pieds sur terre et le cœur dans les nuages, nous devons repenser le pionnier. The day has come for a reckoning. That was the voice of Grenadian-Canadian musician Kaya Cater, who narrates the film. O Pioneer blends animation and documentary to track the lives of three West Virginians. It explores the question of what it means to be a pioneer and how those qualities show up in our day-to-day lives. Producer Bill Lynch recently viewed O Pioneer and has more. An opening monologue partly in French is maybe not what you expect when you sit down to watch a documentary about Appalachia. But O Pioneer, a film by Jonathan Lecoque and Claire Lehman, is full of surprises and wonder. Largely shot during the early months of COVID, the film combines live action with animation to tell a story about Appalachian creativity, empathy, and resilience. O Pioneer follows the lives of three people, an artistic seamstress, a gay chaplain, and a modern-day blacksmith. The film documents their struggles during a season of anxiety and worry. I reached out to Jonathan and Clara, who invited me to visit them in Helvetia, where they live. Helvetia is a tiny out-of-the-way town in Randolph County, West Virginia, and a local curiosity. Settled by Swiss immigrants after the Civil War, every winter the town hosts a Fasnacht festival. People wear masks, there's a parade, and they burn a representation of Old Man Winter. The festival attracts around 1,000 people, which is something in a town that usually has less than 40 residents. So I met the two of them at the town's single restaurant. We had lunch and over sausage sandwiches and fried apples. I asked about O Pioneer and what it meant. My grandmother used to recite the Walt Whitman poem, O Pioneer, Pioneers, O Pioneers. And one night was just curious, like, why did that come to me? Why am I curious about this period in time? And we were, had just finished our film, Born in a Ballroom, and we were trying to figure out what should we do next. And I think that it was just an in, a gut feeling of, like, I need to follow this. And Jonathan agreed. And, and what struck me was this idea of, like, how do we not just have that sort of reckoning with what the term pioneer means historically, culturally, but also how do we change the perspective so that 
we see that our neighbors can be pioneers, that we can be pioneers, that there's this sort of a more grounded quality to it. And so how do we, you know, look at that without, you know, this is not a historical documentary. There's an intangibility to it that we tried to make tangible. But ultimately, looking at that term in a way that makes people see the value of themselves and of each other, uh, you know, in everyday life. And I think that, to put it in a soundbite, O Pioneer is trying to reckon with and redefine what it means to be a pioneer. And it's a heavy, complex word, and it either has this very exploitative connotation in a historical context, or it can be even unreachable in a like, okay, there's suddenly these amazing inventions that happen and now you're a pioneer, right? Or you've um, found this new method to, you know, solve a problem and you're a pioneer. It's like negative or super positive and like we're trying to reckon with that. Yeah, it's like take the viewpoint of the guy or the woman who goes to space or that creates a new scientific breakthrough but look at like everyday moments, some sort of troubling, challenging experience. Like I feel like there's just as much beauty in that, you know, sort of pioneering moment of like, I'm not going to react the way that maybe we as humans might easily go just because of who we are as beings, you know. Um, I think a lot of the film is about how we respond to things too. We always have a choice on how we react to a situation. And I feel like there can be a pioneering spirit within those sometimes little moments. Your subjects, the, the folks who, uh, who star in your film, how did you find them? Yeah, great question. So the four participants in this film include a narrator and a lyrical guide named Kaya Cater. She is a fantastic musician. She studied Appalachian music at DE, Davis and Elkins College in Elkins, West Virginia, and that's how we met her. And then Nolly Rose Gunderson Davis is from Elkins, West Virginia, and kind of well known within the art community of West Virginia because her clothing is very unique. She hand paints it. There's that unique quality that you may not expect, and it's like, hey, that's here in West Virginia too, and mm-hmm. feels very pioneering to choose to make things that their clothing that's maybe more fun and playful than just, you know, utilitarian or form-fitting or those sorts of things. Right. And then James Morley, uh, he preached at our local church in Helvetia, West Virginia. He is one of those people that just strikes you immediately. I'm not particularly a religious person per se, but he makes you want to believe Absolutely. He's just so powerful and so kind. Well, so James, because we saw him preach, we saw what a great storyteller and orator he is. And so right away we're drawn to that. But what he does and the way he preaches is grounds everything. And so much empathy. Like he makes you immediately feel like you're heard and seen. And um, and yet he demands of you in not a, a an ugly way that he be heard and seen. And then the last uh, participant is Tim Hibbs. He is from Buchanan, West Virginia. I mean, technically he's from Queens, but it's such a small little town in the middle of the woods that most people don't know it. Um, he has a, a little shop out in, in Buchanan, and um, he's an, a blacksmith artist, a uh, renaissance man, and he and his family are these really bright artistic people that live in a hollow and we happened to meet him at the Helvetia Fair here in Helvetia and he was selling his wares and we just were intrigued and I think when I was thinking about how do we frame this pioneer story I wanted to make sure that we anchored to some of what we kind of traditionally think of as a pioneer blacksmithing sewing maybe a little bit chaplaincy or the church Um, a lot of times pioneers use those methods to either survive or to spread their uh, communities, things like that. So I felt like those made sense. Yeah. Animation plays quite a bit, and it kind of creates a kind of a magical sort of reality that goes along with uh, your storytelling there. Lots. Why don't you take lead on that question? Yeah, so Claire and I own a creative studio here in Helvetia called Coat of Arms, and our bread and butter is storytelling, usually shorter content, and that can be anything from you know, what you might call an explainer video or a video for a corporation to a short film that we would do ourselves or work with the filmmaker on. When we started filming, we thought it was just going to be filming, but the pandemic happened. And so we weren't able to so easily film with our characters at first. So we sent them, you know, like audio recorders and started brainstorming on how do we 
visually represent these stories where we can't capture them visually. And so that's where we sort of looked at our skill set and then, you know, how are we going to represent it? Animation would be would be a lovely way to do that. Yeah, but I think reenactments can come in different forms and um, people have used animation before for the in the exact same way as we do. But we also, I feel like we tried really hard not to make them feel like reenactments, more like they are an extension of the person. So like Jonathan said, we paired a style with each character. And then that allowed us to then make sure that you, when you see that coming on the frame, kind of start to subliminally recognize, okay, this palette, this character, this type of, uh, type of illustration is with Tim or James or Nellie. With something like this, where you're kind of you know, stepping into someone's life a little bit, how do you know when to stop? It is a, it's a challenge for sure to know when to stop. And one thing that I will say is I, I think that what this film does is show us how, every, how much everybody goes through. Like, none of it was planned in terms of what each character deals with. And I feel like if any person anywhere has a film crew following them for two years, three years, we will see how incredible people are, you know? And that's really what in my mind is really hopeful and inspiring about the film is I hope that we've come out of this time where we couldn't socialize the way we need to at times. People can watch this film and be like, I want to talk to my neighbor. I want to listen to this stranger's story. You know, this woman who comes up to me in the street, I want to be a little bit more open to what she's going to say than shut her off right away because I've got... 10 emails in my phone or something, you know, just to do a little bit more listening. That was Jonathan Lecoque and Clara Lehman speaking with Bill Lynch about their new documentary, O Pioneer. The film is being shown at select theaters and festivals, including the Mountain Craft Film Festival in Clarksburg and the Louisville International Festival of Film in Kentucky. If you're standing next to a body of water, like a lake, a river, or even a tiny creek, and there are flat rocks lying there, the impulse to skip them is just about irresistible. Just about anybody can do it, but some people are really good at it. Like Kurt Steiner of Western Pennsylvania, who's recognized as one of the best in the world at skipping rocks. In July, Steiner went to Mackinac Island, a little patch of land between Michigan's two peninsulas, to compete in a stone-skipping tournament. Dan Wanshara of the Points North podcast brings us this. It's the 4th of July on Mackinac Island. This island in Lake Huron is famous for its fudge and horse-drawn carriages. Today, the smell of both, the real fudge and the horse's version of it, fills the air. I'm not here for the fudge, though. I'm here for stone-skipping. This here on Mackinac Island is the stone-skipping capital of the United States. Tournament organizers say this is the oldest stone-skipping competition in the country. It's been happening for 55 years. This is the trophy that everyone wants to win. This is the Stanley Cup of stone-skipping. This is the bragging rights across the country. I'm hoping to meet a guy with the ultimate bragging rights. Kurt Steiner is his name. He once threw a stone that skipped on the water 88 times. Yeah, 88 skips. That's the Guinness World Record. I spot Kurt down by the water. He's warming up, whipping stones across the lake. Kurt Mountain Man Steiner. That's you. Is it, oh, are we good? Is it, are we on here? Okay, yeah, that is, this is the guy. If you were to introduce yourself to somebody, what, how would you do that? <laughs> Run away. <laughs> uh, actually, honestly, I know where you're going, but I don't talk about this. I don't like lead with it. You know, if there's an organic hook into the subject, I will obviously jump on it. Uh, otherwise, I'm just, uh, uh, you could just consider me a kind of an off-grid kind of progressive economic guy <laughs> if you want to be honest yeah a lot of stone skippers have nicknames kind of like how hikers have trail names mountain man is a good one for kurt steiner because he is one he's 58 and has a long gray scraggly beard 
He lives off-grid in a cabin he built in the Appalachian Mountains. Even though Kurt is considered a professional stone skipper, it's not an occupation that pays the bills. So he does just enough odd jobs to get by. So, like, scrapping, auto repair, and, like, uh, minor construction, uh, uh, contracting kind of stuff. You know, if I can get 10, 15 grand a year, all right, I can coast on that, given the way I live. Kurt says one of his biggest expenses is actually driving around for stone-skipping competitions. Like most people, Kurt doesn't exactly remember the first time he skipped a rock. Grew up right on Lake Erie, I should say, uh, where rocks are plentiful and they suggestive and tempting <laughs> toward, you know, uh, an some kind of archaic switch flips in the head, you know, and you just do it. And uh, I kind of started probably getting into it because I was, I was kind of uh, ASD somewhere in there, you know, in my youth. And What's so, ASD? Autism spectrum. And so uh, skipping rocks was just kind of a way to quiet my head. And, was, you know, I was, it was very introverted, and, and I liked to study the whole process. Sometime after college, Kurt heard about a nearby tournament in Pennsylvania. And then when the tournament happened, I... I won, I squeaked it, but I won just on like old knowledge. And then I just started trying to maximize that. And that was 2000. In 2013, Kurt was in what he describes as peak physical fitness for stone skipping. He'd been throwing between two and 300 rocks a week. On top of that, he'd been diligent with his rigorous workout regimen that includes squats, curls, sit-ups, and push-ups. One day, on the Allegheny River in Pennsylvania, Kurt Steiner threw a stone that skipped 88 times. That's still the world record. What does that record mean to you? I mean, see, I know people like answers like that, but for me it means that I, I tested myself to what I considered my, like my maximal limits, you know, without going like 95% of my hyper potential, right? As much as I could do by myself. So that I know. <laughs> it's that simple, right? I like to know my my boundaries and my abilities so that I'm not like being a hypocrite and talking on my ass when I say that I can do this or that. But how does stone skipping fit into yeah, all that well, for you? My point is, my point is, when you go out and you skip rocks, in my abstract way, I consider that kind of a middle finger at the technological capitalist system, right? It's saying I don't need money to be happy. I don't need to look down and distort my whole brain into this narrow focus of attention and self-importance and, and social, like, addiction. Kurt's a thoughtful guy, and he's got a lot of heady ideas like this. He calls himself a deep-end-of-the-pool social philosopher. Sometimes it's hard to keep up. Obsoleted reflex, quantum union with this emergent condition called civilization. I'm not against capitalism. I'm against bad, non-bonobo primate, kind especially of, ones that you know, benefit the same people who would benefit abstractly in an ancient archaic situation, right? All that to say, skipping rocks makes Kurt happy. That's where I'm now just myself as an organism getting off on that primal process of, uh, I've said it before, you know, creating your own awe. Stone skipping does that. It's throwing a rock so fast at the right angle that when it hits the water, it makes a small wave which pushes it back up into the air, again and again and again. Or, in Kurt's case, again and again, 88 times. It's like the stone defies gravity. You make a law of physics get violated, like stones that float, by interposing yourself as an active agent. And then you get to, you, you make your effort with skill you've learned through this material process, and then you step back, and then you amaze yourself with your biological potential to be amazed by what you've done. And then at the very end of it, you go, oh, and I did this. There are a handful of well-known stone-skipping competitions around the country, including ones in Pennsylvania and Arkansas. In those tournaments, the water is typically pretty flat. But here, on Lake Huron, skippers have to work around unpredictable waves. 
So to me, it's the difference, I say, between like the, the French Open and like Wimbledon, right? Pennsylvania is like Wimbledon, right? It is fast and you got to have that kind of, that skill. Here, it's, you got to kind of grind it out. This is all about reading the water, controlling your power, uh, and, and picking your target really carefully. Today, the mountain man is having a rough go of all three. His first three official throws top out at just two skips each. Kurt, the mountain man, Steiner. Skip the two, a two, and a two. Can he get over the two? He is the current Guinness Book record holder. Everybody comes here to see him. Let's see what he's skipping today. Kurt studies the water carefully, looking for a calm spot on the lake. Then he winds up like a baseball pitcher, cocks his arm into the shape of an L, and slings his stone so that it smacks the water at about a 20-degree angle. Kurt at least beats the two on that one. Let's see what the judges give him. 13! A 13! 13 skips is a decent throw in these conditions, but Kurt can't build off it. The world record holder's last two skips are two and three, respectively. Instead, the winner is a newcomer, John the Green Giant Jennings from Kentucky. Ladies and gentlemen, the newest member of the Pro Division, John Jennings from Kentucky. He wins by throwing a rock that skips 22 times. Still way short of Kurt's world record, but enough to win on rough Lake Huron water. John Jennings says he idolizes the mountain man. He studies Kurt's technique to try to incorporate elements into his own game. So it's definitely very humbling to, you know, not only be in a competition against him, but also to win against him. Like, it's, it's crazy. And, um, but I don't know if he told you about his shoulder, but, I mean, I think if his shoulder wasn't the way it is, he would have been out here throwing like crazy. Kurt is recovering from a shoulder surgery he had a little over a year ago. It repaired a torn labrum. Repetitive stone skipping, the likely culprit. Kurt says throwing hard still hurts. I have no excuse. I should have really hit my marks and I blew it. I should say, that, you know, I'm two years out of practice, but I'm not going to make any excuses like I just did. Sorry about that. Fact is, um, I don't know. Can I say maybe because I got a little high? <laughs> You might want to cut that out. <laughs> and I overshot my mark. And I'm a little dehydrated from drinking last night. So, uh, welcome to me. I, you know, I can do that now. I'm allowed. You know, you got six rocks to throw. I probably threw the worst rocks in my life today. <laughs> so, uh, please don't judge me by that. Despite Kurt's performance today, he's not done. He actually thinks he has more power after the surgery. He just needs to adjust to it. And he's already got his sights set on his next goal. Once I dial myself in, <laughs> I think, uh, I actually think I might go for the uh, natural stone distance record, which is to say if you can throw 400 feet with a natural rock, you have a world record. So you're trying to throw it 400 feet? Just in the air, right? No, 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 you have to throw a rock that skips and travels at least 400 feet before it sinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the guy who's got the current record at 399, and I'm getting old and the clock is ticking, but I'm thinking if I'm going to make a shot at it, you know, next two years, I'll give it a whack. That story was produced by Dan Winchera. If you want more stories from around the Great Lakes, check out the Points North podcast. Coming up, we slip on our mud boots and head out into the bogs of Floyd County, Virginia to search for a special kind of turtle. It makes me so excited. It's so beautiful. Cool, guys. But I've never seen eggs. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. 
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by 16 Hands, presenting self-guided studio tours with handmade crafts in Floyd County, Virginia, October 21st and 22nd. Information at 16hands.com. Bog turtles are the tiniest turtle in North America and among the most endangered. Their habitats are disappearing. Radioacu's Roxy Todd went along with biologists who are researching how many of these rare turtles still exist. I was warned before I went. There was hardly any chance that I'd see a bog turtle. They're tiny and like to hide. Rarely, even if you know there's bog turtles in an area, will you ever see one. Amy Roberts has only seen a few, and she's been researching them for years with the Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy, along with Mike Knorr. Bog turtles are three or four inches long, and they have a big orange-reddish patch behind their eye as well, which is pretty typical for the species, pretty iconic. I think they're, they're beautiful. The bog turtle was in the headlines earlier this year, after organizers of Floyd Fest announced they'd hit delays in the permitting process for their new property in Floyd County. They canceled this year's music festival, and some people went on social media blaming the bog turtle as the culprit. In fact, the turtle had nothing to do with Floyd Fest's postponement, says one of the festival organizers, Sam Calhoun. Harming anything is kind of the antithesis of Floyd Fest from the very beginning. Uh, We're doing everything uh, by the book uh, so we can protect anything that needs to be protected. Even though they haven't seen any bog turtles on their property, Calhoun says they've adjusted their construction plans to keep the wetlands untouched. The main risks to bog turtles are their disappearing habitats, as housing developments and roads replace these bogs, and landowners ditch or drain the swamps. Floyd County actually has some of the best preserved bogs for these turtles, says state herpetologist J.D. Klepfer. It's like the good Lord just took a pepper shaker and just shook out these little wetlands all over Floyd County. Bog turtles have existed in these mountains for at least 10,000 years. If you look at a photo of these things, your heart may seriously melt. They're so cute, in fact, they go for big money on the black market and poachers steal them. Today, they're listed as endangered in Virginia, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is considering adding southern populations of bog turtles to the list of federally protected endangered species. So I had to promise never to disclose our location when I accompanied the biologists to watch as they set up camera traps. It's a lot, lot of work to survey all these wetlands around this area. Muddy water sloshes around our legs as we move through tall grasses, beautiful swamp rose flowers, and a strong-smelling plant called swamp cabbage. And then we spot a bog turtle nest with four eggs. It makes me so excited. It's so beautiful. Cool, guys. But I've never seen eggs. The news is also a shock to the landowner. He was completely unaware that bog turtles live on his property. In a month, the scientists will take the cameras back to their lab, where they'll analyze thousands of photos to see how many bog turtles and other animals they can spot. In three years, they hope to have a better sense of how many bog turtles still live in the mountains of Appalachia. In a bog, somewhere in Floyd County, I'm Roxy Todd. The Yakagani River flows north from West Virginia into Pennsylvania before emptying into the Monongahela River south of Pittsburgh. Tim Palmer wrote about it 40 years ago in the Yakagani Appalachian River. He revisits the river in a new edition and recently spoke with the Allegheny Front's Carol Holsopel. My ancestors first moved to this area in 1787. And they actually settled in Jockey Hollow, which is now flooded by Yakageni Reservoir. The uh, family contingent soon moved to Ohio Pile and spent like the next five generations there. And so I went there as a kid on family trips. I got to run wild as this little kid in the Appalachian Mountains. So I developed this perspective on the place that goes back to my first memories, really, as a child. How is this new edition different from the previous version, and what was the process for updating it? The first edition of the book was in 1984. I can't believe that's 40 years ago. I had already written my first book, which is called Rivers of Pennsylvania. I had become a landscape architect and a county planner in north-central Pennsylvania. 
I saw this as a great opportunity to draw on my family history, my personal background, the passion I developed for river conservation and rivers everywhere. There's a lot of history in the book, but it's much more than a, than a history. I took principally a journalist's approach in interviewing people to get the modern-day story. I went there and stayed for months and months at a time over a period of two years and wrote about my personal experiences and my personal impressions of the place. Two years ago, the new marketing director for the press gave me a call and said, Tim, would you be interested in doing a second edition of the book? And I said, well, sure, that would be great. I don't want to change what's in the book because it's pretty much a set piece as it is. I really don't want to mess with that. But I'd be thrilled to write a new introduction, principally about why the Yakagani is so important to us today and a substantial epilogue to bring people up to date on a lot of the really important issues and events and situations that exist. What are some of the biggest ecological changes you noticed about the river and the landscape along it? The big one, that's easy. It's way cleaner than it was. I mean, going back even before I wrote the first book, the Okagene River was essentially sterilized by acid mine drainage. There were hardly any fish in it at all. That gradually improved through the 60s and 70s, and then there were more market improvements in the 80s and 90s. As our state agency got a better grip on strip mining, and as we pursued mine reclamation, when I was a kid, Cucumber Run, which is kind of the premier small waterfall in Ohio Piles State Park, and actually in Pennsylvania, Cucumber Run was like day-glow orange with acid mine drainage. And now it's just a beautiful stream. Again, that's a change that's really good. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. Across the country, schools are forced to double up on and even cancel classes because of teacher shortages. The problems felt here in Appalachia, too, where vacancies are often filled by substitutes who lack formal teacher training. WVPB's Chris Schultz reports on West Virginia's efforts to keep schools staffed. Sitting in his office in Morgantown, Monongahela County Superintendent Eddie Campbell reminisces about a problem he used to have, too many applicants. We post an elementary position 10 years ago, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been unlikely to get 60 applicants uh, for one elementary position. But things have changed. Campbell says now he's lucky to get a third as many people applying. That is even exacerbated, really, when we start talking about these critical positions. Uh, Math, high school science, foreign language, special education. We're talking single-digit applicants uh, for these posted positions. And and many times, even we're, we're getting applicants that aren't qualified by certification, and we might only have one or two applicants for a math position. For the last several years, West Virginia has come up against a difficult issue. The West Virginia Department of Education estimated that last year there were some 1,500 vacancies in certified teacher positions in the state. Campbell says he and other educational leaders have to increasingly rely on long-term substitutes to fill in the gaps. But the issue is not unique to West Virginia. The National Center for Education Statistics reported in early 2022 that 44% of public schools nationally had full or part-time teaching vacancies. A variety of issues have contributed to the decline, including pay, added responsibilities, and public perception of the teaching profession. Hans Fogel is the public information officer for Jefferson County Schools. He says the COVID-19 pandemic amplified and accelerated issues that already existed. Anecdotally over COVID, we saw the great retirement Mm -hmm. where anyone who was eligible for retirement did so. Uh, Part of that is because you had to adapt uh, at a moment's notice to an entirely new way of teaching, new way of doing school. The burnout was significant. The great retirement trend played out across the workforce, but those close to retirement are not the only ones leaving the teaching profession. A national survey of teachers conducted by Merrimack College in 2022 found that just 12% of teachers are very satisfied with their jobs, with more than 4 in 10 teachers saying they were very or fairly likely to leave the profession in the next two years. Campbell says one thing that has changed significantly since he started working is just how much is expected of teachers. When I came up through the ranks, it was, we're going to teach kids to read, we're going to teach kids to do some math and build some relationships. He calls these increased responsibilities 
mission creep. Campbell says many of the new responsibilities, such as suicide prevention, eating disorder prevention, and now security, all come with mandatory trainings. There are many, many legal requirements. I was on a call today with the state superintendent, and we were talking and discussing the sheer number of required professional development and training that our professional educators are required to do on an annual basis. School systems are having to front load professional development days before school even starts to train our teachers. Dale Lee is the president of the West Virginia Education Association. He and others say the number of requirements sends the message to educators that they aren't trusted. When the legislature wants to micromanage everything that you do in the classroom, no one wants to go into education. Many of our colleges have seen dramatic decreases in the number of students that are going into education. So we have to make it attractive, both financially and, and with respect. Lee, who taught math for decades before moving to the WVEA, says no one knows students and their needs better than the teacher in front of the classroom. And those needs are increasing. That's in part because of the state's high opioid use and its impact on students' families. Teachers are becoming the caregivers, the pat on the back, the loving person in front of those kids. A lot of times they're the only kind words the kid gets during the day is, is from the educators. You become a, a social worker, you become a nurse, just a litany of things that the family unit used to take care of. And now the, the, the educators being asked more and more to, to address those issues. Melissa Campbell is a fourth grade teacher in Ritchie County. She's been teaching for 11 years and agrees that the job has become harder in recent years in no small part because of the mental health requirements of students. The children are so different now and their lifestyles are so different, their traumas are so different, their struggles are so different that we are trying to be everything they need mentally, emotionally, physically, educationally. And to do that, it's impossible. She says schools need more resources to address students' mental health needs. Outside work, Campbell also feels the pressure of public perception. She says growing up, being a teacher commanded a certain level of respect. But these days, she's sometimes unsure whether to tell people what she does for work. Now it's very scrutinized in public. It's very open. Whether it's social media or the news, you're going to see education across the board being thrown in some way in a negative light. So I think it got too hard for people because you're taught to keep that down and, you know, keep peace and maintain your sort of like shield. But it's sometimes hard to try to do that. The shortage is not limited to teaching positions. In the same report from the National Center for Education Statistics, it was found that 49% of public schools reported at least one non-teaching staff vacancy in 2022. Rachel Ringler is the Human Resource Service Coordinator for Jefferson County Schools. We are, are in desperate need of substitutes for aides, for cooks, custodians, um, secretaries, general maintenance. Pay is a factor both for teachers and staff. According to the most recently available data from the National Center for Education Statistics, West Virginia had an average teacher salary just over $50,000 in 2021, the fourth lowest in the country and $15,000 below the national average teacher salary of $65,000. For many educators, low pay is just the most visible symptom of a much larger issue, a lack of value and respect. But despite setbacks, it continues to be not only a vocation, but a passion for most. I still think education is one of the most important, I want to call it a job, but it's, it's my life. Todd Seymour is the principal at Preston High School. For him, the issue boils down to what society prioritizes and rewards. With as much as we pay entertainers and we, we pay teachers, minimal. A lot of teachers have second jobs. You know, so again, if you want to talk about one of the reasons they're leaving, because some of them have to get second jobs to raise a family. Ringler agrees that all school workers need to be recognized for the work they do. We're talking a lot about a lot of negatives and not having, but I think we need to turn that and praise all the teachers, all those aides, all the bus drivers, the cafeteria ladies who we've had here with us for, you know, for several years and, and honor them. As it stands, the dwindling prestige and pay of education as a career has a knock-on effect the profession will be feeling for years. But efforts are underway to try to turn the tide in favor of the next generation of educators. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown.
That story is part of a series called Help Wanted, Understanding West Virginia's Labor Force. For more stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. We close today's episode with a work of Appalachian fiction, a short story called Dark Early by author Laura Long. It's read by storyteller and actor James Frommel. Dark Early by Laura Long. One November evening, Billy tasted onion soup in her kitchen and remembered her honeymoon two years ago. She and Sam had flown her first plane ride to Mexico and jounced on an old blue bus to Isla de la Mujeres. There they drank milk from coconuts that fell with soft thuds in the sand, and they strolled under clicking palms beside a sea that lapped turquoise over their toes. When Sam floated in the salt-heavy water, eyes closed above a dreamy smile, Billy thought, I don't know him. The next day, they giggled in bed and waltzed naked around their room, perched on stilts above the Caribbean. Sharp-winged turns dropped like stones into the sea and rose flapping, spraying light into light. Now they lived in Morgantown, West Virginia. The old house where they had an apartment was part of an enormous maze of old homes, stubbornly dug into a steep mountainside. Billy had graduated from a little college in Ohio, and afterwards, when she was visiting Morgantown, she fell for Sam. She hadn't planned to move here. She wanted to live somewhere outside of West Virginia. Of course you do, her grandmother Essie had laughed. Wanting to leave is part of being a West by God Virginian. Even our state song is about leaving and pining to come back. If o'er land or sea I roam, still I think of happy home and my friends among those West Virginia hills. Honey, you'll move to a city or some flat land and wind up homesick. Still, she was 24 and ought to get somewhere with her life. Today she had surfed the websites of restaurants in Los Angeles, Miami, and the Bahamas. She was a waitress, so she could get a job almost anywhere, right? Sam didn't want to leave. He was mired in writing his master's thesis on the Battle of Waterloo. That or his day job was scrambling his brain. All day he drove a taxi through these crooked streets up into the hills. It's ready, Billy called to Sam, and she carried bowls of soup into the dining room. Something was odd was off, as if a piece of furniture had been moved. She looked down the open room that ran the length of the house. In the middle of this length was a black fireplace they couldn't use because the landlord had said the chimney might catch fire. The fireplace gazed at her with disappointment, remembering fires it used to have, was meant to have. Now, nothing was awry, but something was different. The huge old windows were black instead of soft with evening light. Look. Billy said when Sam walked in and kissed her neck. She pointed to the nearby window, the merged shape of the two of them glinted there, ghost pale yet definite. The time changed. It's dark early now, Sam said. They sat down, bowls of soup, plates of spaghetti, and a basket of bread between them. We're supposed to get a killing frost tomorrow. He ate with the concentration of a weary man. He rhythmically ate the soup, then dug into the spaghetti, plummy with tomatoes. She twirled her fork. I took this sauce out of the freezer today. Remember I made it in August? He nodded. She had picked up a crate of tomatoes cheap from a roadside stand. The ripe tomatoes were bruised and cracking, oozing with sweet juice and needed to be cut and cooked right away. She'd simmer them all the next day in two big pots. That seemed far away now. A day when she knew exactly what life was asking of her. I've got to find another job. I don't want to drive a taxi in the ice and snow. Sam's eyes skittered into hers and away. His left forearm was still slightly tanned from being angled out the taxi window all summer and fall. He used to spend every evening in his study, a tiny back room off the kitchen. His stacks of books went straight up to the low, angled ceiling, the spines spilling letters in prim little banners. For the last few weeks, his thesis had sat in several heaps on the desk, untouched. Billy twirled and untwirled her spaghetti. One afternoon this past summer, she had ridden downtown on her bike and seen Sam parked in front of the courthouse, where he waited for dispatches. 
It seemed he wasn't her 26-year-old husband or a grad student stranded within a thesis on the Battle of Waterloo. He was an anonymous taxi driver, submerged in the shadow of a big yellow taxi. He hadn't seen her. He ignored the coal trucks that heaved by, the pigeons flapping above the courthouse square, and the old men on benches who played dominoes and talked about the good war and the new mayor in rumpled old men voices. Unlike the other two taxi drivers parked there, Sam didn't read a newspaper. He read a thick, hardbound book propped on the steering wheel. She knew the book was War and Peace. And then he was her Sam again. He saw wars as terrible events, usually bumbled into by power-crazed rulers. But Sam was intrigued, even obsessed, by Napoleon and the thousands of lives he had commanded into death. A lot of those men, he once told Billy, died for love. Real loyalty is the same thing as love. Did some of the men following Napoleon die for love? She couldn't agree. Surely loyalty wasn't the same thing as love. Love had to be more, somehow. But every time she tried to figure out if loyalty could rise to the level of love, loyalty was generous, hopeful, idealistic, blind, her mind went doodling down paths that weren't argument or answer, till finally, there was no path at all. After supper, Billy climbed on the bed to write a card to a college buddy who had just gotten married. Sam washed the dishes. Billy began, I hope. What should she hope for her newlywed friend? Health and wealth, moonies, spoony nights, adorable puppies and drooling babies. Billy's mother had wanted her to be beautiful and ladylike. Billy refused to make an effort. Major in business, not history. Become a manager and rise in the ranks of one company or another. Not graduate from a fine little college, only to rise from part-time to full-time waitress and find an excellent husband. At 22, Billy had married a poor man without ambition, so her mother described Sam, after which mother and daughter didn't speak for several months. Money doesn't matter now, but it will later, her mother had warned. Now her mother visited twice a year, called Sam Bob, and bought Billy's shoes and a haircut. Afterwards, Billy and Sam vied with each other for the best imitation of the mother's dismay. Darling, let's measure these windows for curtains so you can take down those tacked-up bedspreads. Sam stretched out on the couch that served as most of their living room furniture and unfolded the Sunday paper. The help-wanted pages crackled as he shook them open. He murmured, Doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. Billy scrawled on the card, Wishing you everything... She paused and chewed on the pen tip and then finished, You want. She signed the card for her and Sam, hurried it into the envelope, then sprawled on the bed. She knew about Sam's recurring dreams about a black dog with blood on its teeth, and he knew about her childhood rage at her mother's strict diets and constant irritation that Billy was plump. Billy trimmed the hair that curled behind Sam's ears, and he rubbed her legs with almond oil. Every week, the limbs of their clothes became mysteriously entangled in the laundry and clung together with a dim-witted insistence. A moth flittered against the window beside the bed. Havoc, their cat, battered her claws against the glass, frantic. Billy stroked her spine to soothe her, but the cat meowed and darted her with paws up toward the lone, light, dizzy moth. In summer, moths by the dozen twirled around the porch lights. Soon, Snowflakes would twirl down, melt against the window. Billy thought again of palm fronds and turn wings splintered with light. Sam came over and lifted Havoc into his arms, chanted into her eyes, Butcher, baker, candlestick, maker. Havoc purred with instant enthusiasm. Billy pressed her face to the pane, brightly chill as water. Leaves covered the garden. In the steam of summer, she and Sam had picked frilled lettuces and fat bell peppers. This is an odd cathedral, Billy thought once when she cut the top off a pepper. The air inside is so still. Billy clenched her fists. She wanted to move to a place where all year round cantaloupes swelled into splendid balls. Surely a tropic of cornucopia existed. People were living there right this minute, humming to themselves. The sun heated the backs of their necks. Sweat 
trickled into their eyelashes, and they headed toward the house to pump water out of the earth's cool depths. Frost was a rumor, as remote as the rings of Saturn. With Havoc curled up on the couch next to his head, Sam turned back to the want ads, found the first page, accountant, advertising, auto mechanic. Billy wondered when she would tell him. Maybe he already suspected, and how could she convince him it wasn't his fault? She had to tell him. She was going away, though she couldn't explain why. She would go somewhere else, find out who she was besides someone married to a kind man. But she would not be a coward who left a note. Sam folded the newspaper, got up, and opened the closet. He heaved her large suitcase down. It thumped on the bare floor. What? She gasped and sat up. He opened the suitcase. I reckon it's time to procure our winter provisions. He lifted out lumpy sweaters, floppy turtlenecks, and flannel sheets scattered with silhouettes of dancing bears. She sorted the socks from the mittens. He pulled t-shirts and shorts from the dresser's deep drawers and fitted them into the suitcase. A bikini she'd worn on their honeymoon slipped to the floor, and she picked up the two pieces, splashes of scarlet and gold. She expected them to burn her fingers, but they were cool, like fish. Sam refolded the winter clothes and stacked them in the drawers. He had been the oldest of four kids, and took care of them all while his single mom worked two jobs. He didn't think twice about folding clothes. The suitcase loudly snapped shut. Sam sat back on his heels. Billy felt his eyes resting on her. I'm leaving you, she wanted to blurt. And then she'd explain, Loyalty isn't the same thing as love. Not that I know what either one is, but that was no explanation at all. She saw herself in his mind in the future. The word Billy would translate into a blot, a fool, a heartbreaker. She would call him at midnight crying and get his voicemail. There was no right road for her. No battle to follow, only a crooked path. She opened her mouth. The room grew quiet, as if the killing frost had come and was long forgotten. Because now, the world was full of snow. That was James Fromo reading the short story Dark Early by Laura Long. It's published in the anthology Eyes Glowing at the Edge of the Woods, available through WVU Press. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jeff Ellis, Eric Vincent Huey, Frank George, Lobo Loco, Mary Hot and Jerry Milnes. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. <laughs>